Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Hey, Tara. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited for today's topic since we are both millennials. Yeah, I'm really into it. So how was your week this week? It was good. I just got back from San Francisco. I was down there for work. What about you? Uh, Busy week at work. Just got back from vacation. So just trying to get back in the swing of things. It's been super with a little one back to school and everything too. Yeah. Where were you vacationing? Oh, we just went to visit my aunt in BC. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was awesome. All right, let's jump in. Okay, cool. So we asked our millennial listeners what they were worried about. Um, so the three big ones were financial literacy, housing costs, and student debt. So I was wondering what your thoughts on these three issues were, Janine. These are some huge financial issues that I think a lot of people in our generation are dealing with. For me, I actually think housing costs would be the the biggest barrier to entry. And I think we've talked about this before, but when we compare our generation with the boomer generation, you know, houses back then were like two to three times mm-hmm. an annual salary versus now millennials are looking at like eight to 10 times their annual salary for a house, which is absolutely insane. Yeah. And I, I kind of came to the same conclusion. I looked up some data from Stats Canada and uh, we'll probably link it in the show notes or something, but just a graph. And it showed the wages in real dollars, um, boomers, Gen X, millennials. Then it showed housing debt in real dollars versus housing price in real dollars. So looks really nice for the millennial net worth, But when you start looking at the wage stagnation and how little we've improved in terms of income versus the and the debt level that we've had to take on just to get into the housing market, it's it's astounding. Yeah, I was actually looking at a graph. I can't remember where it was from, but it showed that if you put the wages of you know our parents' generation in today's dollars. It's really only gone up by like a dollar fifty an hour in terms of the average hourly wage, which is like insane in thirty five years. Well, and unbelievable when you think about how much um, housing prices have gone up, as well as tuition prices. Oh, student debt, I think, is a huge barrier and continues to be a huge barrier, especially now. I mean, when we're recording this at the time that. Um, the Rutherford scholarship has actually just been put on hold. So we're seeing increased tuitions. I'm assuming the UCP will take off the tuition freeze and we're seeing scholarships being canceled. I think like it's going to create a huge barrier to entry for students. Whereas Mm -hmm. like I, when I would talk to my parents, they said that they could earn enough in the four summer months to pay for their tuition for the year. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. I don't think anyone can do that these days. No, you'd have to make, you know, probably well into the, you know, 12000 If you're going to like the U of A or the U of C, mm-hmm. probably twelve to $15,000 for tuition alone and books, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a lot of money in four months. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
So I went and uh, did some research into kind of why these might be um, the worries that are on the minds of millennials and if there's just a perception or if anything's based in fact. We've already talked about it. It's there. The data shows it. So we talked about the wage stagnation. Uh, We can see that. The Canadian data shows it. Um, There was also something I thought was really interesting. There's a widening income distribution. So when our parents were younger, there was a smaller gap between the lowest income earners and the highest income earners. Now the gap for the millennial generation is much wider. And in fact, the top 10% of millennials held 55% of total net worth of all Canadian millennials. So, Oh my God, that is a staggering statistic. And if my math serves me correctly, that means that 45% is held by... 90% of the millennials across Canada, which is mm-hmm. insane. And I mean, I don't think we have the stats here, but I'm sure in previous generations, it was not that. Um, I think I've seen statistics where it's like the top, you know, 10% of people hold, you know, 80% of the wealth. But looking at this from a millennial standpoint, we're all still fairly young so for that gap to be as big as it is already it's Mm -hmm. just going to continue to to widen you would think yeah it's definitely from what I saw and I mean we're not the authorities on this we didn't do the research but from what I saw on StatsCan and um, a few of the other websites that I I looked at um, it does look like this uh, income gap this income distribution is definitely getting wider And so one thing that I can kind of extrapolate from that would be that there's an erosion of the middle class. If you have uh, a bigger gap between the highest earners and the lowest earners, who's left in the middle? There's fewer people there. For sure. And as I said before, you know, 10% holding 55% of the wealth, if you just think about the compounding interest effect Mm -hmm. over the course of their life so what millennials are about 30 right now ish so in another 30 years when we're all retiring think about how that wealth that 55 percent of the wealth will have compounded and grown Mm -hmm. and yeah I think that we will start to really see a dwindling of the middle class because there's going to be this extremely wealthy group of millennials and there's also going to be people that are you know barely scraping by on minimum wage Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's um, one of the things that I think we'll get to in the next bit about minimum wage and everything like that. Another thing I looked at was that there's a difference in the perception as well. So it's not just in the data, but people are actually noticing it. And most millennials do feel that they are in a worse situation than the previous generation, as well as Gen X uh, feels that way too. I think with that, we can maybe speak to the fact that, you know, the boomers made their wealth in a system that benefited them Mm -hmm. widely. When we look at things like pension plans, you know, maybe they did work hard all the way up to the, all the way up the corporate ladder, but they also are going into retirement with things like pension plans. They did have more Mm -hmm. affordable housing. And in comparison, yeah, their incomes were a lot higher. So when we look at that and we see the sentiment of you know all millennials are just entitled I think that 
a terrible way of looking at it because we're, we're not an entitled generation. We're, we're pretty fed up actually with how much things are costing and how little we're being paid for those jobs compared to kind of what the boomers got to benefit from and build their mm-hmm. wealth off of. Exactly. And it's just where the boomer generation is at their stage in life. They're maybe not able to see the same kind of struggles because they're not dealing with the lifestyle inflation that we are, that kind of thing, and the wage stagnation in the same way. I also saw from this uh, survey that I was looking at is that Canadian boomers also are feeling pretty secure and that they will have money for retirement, while, uh, whereas Gen X and the millennial generation are not. Um, people are very concerned that they're not going to have money to retire. For sure, I think out of my friend group, like I'm just trying to poll people I know, maybe one has a pension plan and they work at the university. Mm-hmm. Other than that, like, yeah, there's some RSP matching. Some people don't even have that. But realistically, who even knows if, you know, OAS and um, the pension plans are going to be available by the time we are in, at retirement age well, and if we look at that statistic again about the ten top 10% of millennials holding 55% of the wealth, um, you know, it would be interesting to see what percentage of millennials actually have um, secure retirement planning or retirement planning support from their workplaces or even consistent work. Yeah, that's you know, that's huge as we move into more of a precarious work situation for a lot of people. Uh, they work multiple jobs as gig economy workers. They don't have pension plans. Uber drivers and, you know, Foodora and DoorDash and whatnot, none of those have retirement plans. And even we're seeing from a professional standpoint, the job I was at previous to the one I have now, you couldn't contribute and get matching to your RSP until you had been there for two years. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, where my husband worked previously, it was until you made manager, so four years. And wow. I mean, no surprise, but I think people know who I am. And I, these are accounting firms that have done this. But, you know, being in a professional space, you know, we're seeing employers not kind of, in a sense, take care of their em- employees from a financial perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or invest in them and try to keep them long term and commit to the pension plans. For sure. And I, I mean, I was kind of like after two years was looking like, oh, do I stay or do I go? And I was kind of thinking in my head, like, should I even contribute to this pension plan? Because mm-hmm. maybe I won't be here in a year. Well, yeah, if you're not, <laughs> if, uh, if you're not fully vested in the pension plan, what's, what's tying you to that organization? Exactly. And yeah. I mean, there's many pl- reasons for people to work places, but definitely mm-hmm. having that support to help people get on track to start, you know, saving for the long term, I think. Mm-hmm. I guess when we look at employer-sponsored plans, it is a great way to get people starting to focus on their financial health because it is free money and, you know, most people understand that taking advantage of that is beneficial. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think so. It would be interesting to see what the participation rate is in those kind of employer-sponsored plans, but I think we can assume it's pretty high. So we're kind of getting into the the next thing I wanted to talk about. So how do all these overarching themes um, and challenges that millennials are dealing with, how can we overcome them and deal with them? 
Yeah, so we've started talking about it a little bit, but on the financial literacy perspective, what do you think we can do to help millennials or to help each other as millennials? I think talking about money and making it less taboo is definitely a great way to start the ball rolling. You know, finding out, I know companies hate this and too bad, but, you know, finding out what people that have similar jobs to you make, whether that Mm -hmm. is asking an employer, looking at things like Glassdoor so that you know that you are being paid what you're worth. I think that can help because obviously Mm -hmm. increased income as well. You know, we've talked about investing at length, but it really is the way to start to build wealth and earning one or two percent is not going to cut it. So understanding and learning and teaching about why investing is so important at a young age, I think, is a great way we can use financial literacy to help millennials get the education they need. Yeah. And I think we've talked a little bit about debt in here as well with the housing costs and um, student debt. So educating yourself on uh, consumer debt as well and how to avoid that, how to make credit work for you, which we talked about in a, a different episode as well. Sorry, on that, I would just say, you know, shopping around for literally everything, whether that's an investment you know, company you're going to invest with or an advisor, or uh, if you're taking a loan out, you know, don't just ask financial institutions. You could look to credit unions or companies that also offer lending. Obviously, please try and stay away from uh, payday loans. But, Mm -hmm. you know, making sure that you're getting the lowest rate possible. I think sometimes where we think that we only have like one or two choices, right? Like which of the big four banks is going to give me a loan? Whereas there's, you know, there's so many other financial institutions and people and companies out there, I think on your point to making credit work for you, doing research on that is so Mm -hmm. important. Yeah. And understanding what you're signing as well and getting trusted financial advice too. You know, if you're looking for a loan or a credit card or um, investment advice or whatever, if you don't feel comfortable with the person giving you advice, if they're not asking you personal questions, like we haven't given any straight personal advice, personal financial advice. So looking for a trusted personal financial advisor as well you know when you're looking for um, help in terms of credit whether it be a loan or a credit card or investments or whatever if you're not comfortable with the person that you're talking to if you know just interview people just interview people and make sure that they have your best interests in mind and that goes you know not only for financial advisors that goes for realtors that goes Mm -hmm. for you know anytime you're making a big financial decision buying a car whatever You need to make sure that you understand how those people are being compensated. And mm-hmm. again, being able to trust them is is paramount. Yeah. And if it seems too good to be true, probably is. Yeah, I was just going to say it <laughs> probably is. It is too good to be true. Yeah. And with cars especially too, just walk away. Think about it. Any consumer decision like that too. Houses as well. Yeah. I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I got years ago was, you know, try not to fall in love in a sense with inanimate objects. Mm -hmm. So whether that's a house or a car, like you can like it a lot. But when you kind of mix those emotions in terms of, oh, I love this car, I love this whatever, maybe you love a certain investment. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think it makes it hard to make the best decision for you financially. Yeah, definitely. I agree. The next thing I was thinking about was the housing costs and how we as a whole, millennials as a a group, 
could deal with this because I don't think housing costs are going to be solved by us as individuals just saving more or putting a larger down payment down or buying in certain areas, markets, that kind of thing. I think this is a bigger problem than any one millennial. For sure. And I've seen also some actually really interesting solutions to the housing issue. So I've seen you know, kind of like carriage houses or laneway houses being mm-hmm. built on like inner city properties. I've also seen um, more condensed living going up in inner city areas so that people can live closer to work. But like you mentioned, you know, us building a laneway house or a tiny house or whatever is not going to solve the the crisis that we have in Canada with the housing costs in urban centers. I think especially like looking at Calgary, we had a hell of a time finding a three bedroom, 1200 Mm -hmm. plus square feet in the downtown area. And that is because of how, um, I guess, builders have been compensated and the regulations that our city has. So if you can sell more two bedrooms, of course, you're going to do that. But Mm -hmm. policies like enforcing a certain number of family dwellings in a in a condo building or a townhouse setup or whatever is a fantastic way of starting to push that kind of housing into areas that would be maybe more traditionally too expensive. There's also a company here in Calgary, uh, I'll give them a little bit of a shout out, Round Square. They're doing, um, they're building kind of almost like housing complexes. So it would be like there's, you know, three bedroom townhouses, but there's also, you know, single apartments in all in the same kind of like complex. So there'd be like 30 Mm -hmm. units. And I think that's a great solution as well. But there should be funding and tax breaks for those Mm. companies that are doing that. Incentives, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that when you think about community as well. Um, Now in our climate, we're getting rid of the um, 18 plus buildings. We're getting rid of those kind of things, right? But if you build a a place, community, like, and I'm talking about community in terms of like a suburban area or an apartment complex, and you have it in mind to kind of mix demographics so they're not just all bachelor and one bedrooms in one building and one bedrooms and two bedrooms in another building and all three bedroom townhouses that are side by side. But if you have a three bedroom next to a bachelor, next to um, a two bedroom, next to um a large duplex or something like that, you're just going to end up creating the kind of environment where um, neighbors are going to be of different demographics with different needs. And that would be so nice to see uh, a community built around building community in a social sense. And with that, I think there's a way that we can all benefit from that and help each other out. You know, maybe there is an older retired person that lives in that area that is happy to do the yard care. Mm-hmm. We actually had that in the condo we lived in in Edmonton. And that meant that our condo unit saved a lot on that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe there that elderly person has trouble picking up groceries. So maybe in reciprocation for that, you go and pick up their groceries for them or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think having those mixed demographics is a great way, like you said, to build community, but also we can start to benefit off of each other because we're not all the same type of person living in one area. Yeah, I really like that. Wasn't planning on discussing that, but that's 
that's really neat. I like that idea. One of the things that I thought of as well, which I think that you kind of touched on with regulation, is kind of getting involved with your local governments, getting involved with the local policies, because as we saw with that statistic, 90% of us are going to have some kind of struggle getting into housing, getting into a market that requires a large amount, a high net worth or high income, right? How can we do that if we can't vote with our dollars? How else can we do that? And I think it's speaking up, speaking up for the situations that we are in and realizing that we're not alone. It's going to be 90% of us based on that statistic. And when we look at advocating for things that are actually going to benefit millennials and we look at government, you know, things like a basic wage or increased minimum wage is going to help Mm -hmm. all of us as we go along. I know here in Alberta, it's $15 an hour for those of us that are over 18, but that's not even a living wage. The living wage in Calgary is between $19 and $21. So, you know, to cover your needs, people are still needing four or five more dollars an hour to be able to kind of not be struggling financially. Yeah. And when you think of the local economy as well, if we have people that aren't able to spend, who don't have discretionary dollars and aren't even meeting their basic needs, how can we possibly support local businesses? We won't have the money for it. Exactly. You won't be able to go out for dinner to that local restaurant or buy a coffee from the local chain that's maybe $5. You might Mm -hmm. have to either make your coffee at home or you know, hit up a chain where it's going to be $2 or what, or a dollar at McDonald's or whatever. Yeah. And I think looking at, you know, I'm not an expert in economic policy. I'm not an expert in government policy or anything like that. But it would be interesting to see what we could do to create a base bottom floor for lower and middle class people and ensuring that we maintain our middle class because they're our biggest spenders. They're huge drivers of our economy. They are the people that are, you know, taking vacations and going out for dinners. Mm-hmm. The the wealthy, the top 10% or what have you, is always going to spend money. But at a certain point, you know, they're not going to spend any more. If you have mm-hmm. $5 million, you're probably not going to spend any differently than if you had $3 million. Well, and it won't necessarily all be um, concentrated in the local economy or in the national economy, right? Because you can, if you have that much wealth, you can spread it all over the place. Maybe Panama or something like that. (laughs) So one other thing I actually was thinking about as we were talking here is a book I'm reading called What's Mine is Yours, The Rise of Collaborative Consumption. I think this could actually be a solution for millennials in a time where, you know, it is relatively unaffordable to live and what this book talks about is kind of the fact that everyone is kind of becoming more of a renter than an owner Mm. and I'm not just talking about from the housing standpoint I'm talking about you know renting tools or renting clothes absolutely renting clothes I've seen so many uh, secondhand stores but I've also seen you know subscription services where you uh, get clothes and send them back next month I've also seen that for, you know, life stages like maternity clothing um, is a great example. But I think that to make our lives a little bit more affordable, we may have to look at, you know, renting things that perhaps people used to actually own. I mean, cars is a great, a great example. I mean, my husband and I only have one vehicle and when the other one needs a car, we, you know, we're looking at car to go or we're looking at Lime bike or Lime Mm -hmm. scooter. We're looking at these rentals as ways to get around or, you know, meet our needs without actually having to, you know, put thousands of dollars into a second vehicle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm definitely going to read that book now. Yeah, we'll put the link 
to the book in the show notes below. Moving on to our next one, student debt. This one really hit home for me as a parent because I'm thinking about my education, which is still ongoing, which I think most millennials have faced um, and are currently dealing with. But now I'm also thinking, how do I save up for my kids' education as well? And what is that going to look like? And looking at how much year over year tuition is increasing. So I have a question for you on that. I don't obviously don't have kids, but when you're planning for your child's education, what like dollar amount are you aiming for or are you aiming for a certain amount? Well, at this point, we're looking at maxing out their RESP for sure, first off, taking advantage of the government grants. So we're using a strategy to maximize the government grants and the RESP. Then we have some other funds earmarked and set aside because the RESP is not going to cover it. For our listeners, what's the max for the RESP? 50000 lifetime max at this point. And you think it's going to cost your child more than $50,000 to go to school? Oh, for sure. So from the data that I've looked at, um, for one degree all in, we're probably looking at a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars at this point. Oh my God. Just with the way everything's increasing, lifestyle costs, right? Just inflation year over year and the amount above inflation that tuition is increasing. That terrifies me for when I have a kid. Yeah. And I mean, my husband and I, we're not in a low income demographic by by any stretch of the imagination um and both of us managed to come out three degrees between the two of us with a total combined student debt load of twenty five thousand dollars we came out super ahead um our parents set us up really really well and uh we're very likely not going to be able to provide the same thing for our child, not because we're not good savers, not because we're not taking advantage of the opportunities that we had, but because tuition is just increasing so much every year. So how do we combat this? Like it's it's increasing and it's becoming so expensive and this burden is going to, you know, kind of turn into what I see in the in the United States. People are so overwhelmed with how much they're owing. When they only make, you know, $50,000, they owe $150,000. How do you even start to reconcile that? Yeah. So, well, I think education is invaluable for one. I personally think that education is a really good way to um, level the playing field between traditional classes um, and ensure that our most vulnerable members of the population are keeping pace with the people who are luckier, I suppose, or more privileged. I don't think that anyone should consider not having an education and not having a post-secondary education. I think more needs to be done to make it more affordable and to ensure that everybody realizes that having an educated population is a good thing. Absolutely. That means, you know, more doctors, more teachers for the next generation that comes up behind them and obviously more taxes being collected so that our province is wealthier and our country is wealthier as well. Yeah. And I've I've seen things where, well, we're just at a point in time where people are, are going to have to be more choosy about what type of program they take, what kind of education they have. But I think that really discounts the arts side of things, the more creative educational right. pathways. And those people are important, too. It's not just those who are in business that are making the world a better place. I think people with a general arts background or something like that, they're providing so much value 
Well, we talked about having diverse communities and being able to help each other out. The same is true for our local economies and our province and ways of thinking, right? Diverse ways of thinking is always better. Exactly, exactly. And I think we've mentioned studies that have shown that as well for corporations, but I think we could say that probably as a society as a whole as well. Absolutely. Um, One interesting quote from a book that I've read, which is Four by Scott Galloway. So good. Really great book. But he noted that he's thought about it. He's a professor and he realizes that based on what the tuition costs, his students are paying $500 a minute to hear him speak. Oh, my God. Is that that's not each. That's like collectively, you know, 30. Each student in his lecture is paying $500 per minute of that lecture. Is he in the U.S.? He's in the U.S., okay. yes. At, but still, that's At an insane. Ivy League. But that's insane. No one should have to pay $500 a minute for a degree. Jesus. And it's not as though the professor is seeing all of that money. No, like, of course where not. Where is this going? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. But that's when you have for-profit institutions doing things like educating the young minds of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's... I can't get over that. $500 a minute. Yeah. I would like I would like the general population to see education and post-secondary education as more of a common good rather than a barrier of entry. I wish I was paid $500 a minute. Well, I don't... <laughs> he's not paid $500 a minute either, I don't Jeez, think. I mean, I that just, wasn't mentioned in the I'm book. I'm still but. stuck on that. Huh? I'm going to have yeah. to read that book. Un- unbelievable. I would. I recommend everyone read that book. We'll, we'll um, link that in the show notes as well. I guess we don't have any specific advice. We can't tell you, save this much and you'll be fine, or negotiate this way on your housing purchase and you're going to, you know, overcome this challenge. I suppose our pink tax rebate for the day is that there's no magic bullet for these issues that our generation faces, but we need to work together to overcome them. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) We keep that in. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances.